Well, good morning. We have a few announcements for you before we begin the service. We have a, a Valentine luncheon coming up for the senior single women of the church. Um, the invitation that I read has a, has a verse inside of it from 1 Peter 4, verse 9. And it says, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. If you can do that, then you're welcome to join the senior single women this Wednesday, January 7, for a luncheon to be held from 11.45 to 1.30. If you wish to make it a full morning, you're welcome to come to the senior Bible study at 10.15 and stay for the single senior women's luncheon where there will be no complaining. If you'd like to attend, you need to let Connie Kuykendall know today. Today is the deadline. Her contact information is included in the invitation, which you can find at the welcome desk in the lobby. Secondly, we have a women's conference coming up, the 2024 Women's Conference, to be held March 16 at the Kesslinger campus with speaker and author Lena Abu Jamra, this is an event designed for women of all ages to go deeper in the word, to be challenged, and to be refreshed. See details and registration by following the link at chapelstreet.church forward slash news. And we have multiple ways to give. And I just want to say thank you for your generosity. And I want to say if you're a guest with us today, please don't feel any obligation to give. You're our guest, and we're happy you're here. Lastly, these announcements and more can be found at chapelstreet.church forward slash news. And now would you join me in the call to worship? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in.
Great to see you. Uh, apparently, just like magic, I'm apparently also speaking to Mill Creek campus and South Street campus. So, hello, however that's happening. 
How did the Apostle Paul do ministry without it? What could he have achieved with that simulcast technology? Hey, um, I am such a creature of my time and place. The most obvious and trivial example of that is my funny accent, shaped by where I come from. But what I mean is that I am shaped in the way I think about life, the way I live my life, in large part because of where I grew up, the friends that I have, my family, my education, the media I watch. I am a citizen of my time and place. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. I'm pretty sure we are all citizens of our time and place. And this um, process of citizenization, if we can uh, go to my slides, that'd be fantastic. This process of citizenization is uh, so comprehensive, uh, so subtle, that it's almost impossible for any of us to think objectively about how we think. Which bits of what I think are true and good? Which bits of what I think are not true and good, but I can't tell because I can't think objectively because I'm a citizen of my time and place. Now, here's the interesting thing. We have perfect clarity with other cultures and other generations. We see their blind spots and mistakes with great ease. Do we not? Uh, Think of 18th century slaveholders. Oh, we we see their blind spots. Uh, Think of 11th century Christian crusaders. I mean, we have historical distance from them, so we can see in them things that somehow they weren't able to see in themselves. Actually, the crusaders are a really good example. So let's have a think about the crusaders. Let's watch this. In the blistering heat of July 15th, 1099, 10,000 European crusaders broke through Jerusalem's walls and fought their way up here to one of Islam's most sacred sites and committed one of the great atrocities of Christian history. Thousands barricaded themselves in up here and sought refuge in the mosque. Some even climbed the roof of the mosque to escape. But the crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women, and children. Some they threw off the high walls to their deaths. The rest they butchered. The carnage apparently filled this great promenade. When the fighting was done, the pilgrims, as they like to call themselves, marched 500 meters that way to the ancient Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they held a thanksgiving service. The irony is scorching. Near this church a millennium earlier, Jesus of Nazareth had died on a Roman cross, having called his followers to love their enemies. I hardly know what to say. Here is where the Crusades began, the city of Clermont in the heart of France. 
It's the year 1095, and Pope Urban II is holding a church council. On the final day, he preaches a sermon that changes the course of history. Urban told the crowds that instead of fighting each other at home, they should go to the east to rescue their fellow Christians. They should channel their violence for good. So he issued a decree. Whoever for devotion alone, not to gain honour or money, goes to Jerusalem to liberate the Church of God can substitute this journey for all penance. This was something new and surprising. Salvation for taking up the sword. Preachers like the fiery Peter the Hermit went out across Europe, urging people to take up the cross. More than 100,000 soldiers signed on. They saw themselves as Milites Christi, the Knights of Christ. You see in early medieval texts popularizing Christianity that Christ and his apostles Christ becomes a knight, the apostles become his war band. So the way in which Christianity accommodates the dominant political and social culture of the warrior class is absolutely central to the way in which religious violence becomes an accepted norm. The church might have converted European warrior tribes, but it was also influenced by that warrior culture. And this helps explain how the Crusaders could see their task as a religious one. Now we are disturbed by the way 11th century Christians could be such captives to the warrior ethic of medieval Europe that they could happily kill women and children. We see that with clarity. We ask, how could they have been such citizens of their time and place? But there's an equally disturbing thought. What are our blind spots? Isn't it possible that hundreds of years from now, people will look back on 21st century American evangelicalism and say, how could they have been such citizens of their time and place? Or are we so bold that we think only 11th century Christians or 18th century Christians had blind spots and we've evolved to purity, I'm not sure. Now, in case you're wondering where on earth I'm going with all of this, it's because the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, begs the Philippians not to be citizens of their time and place, but to live by the eternal gospel, the voice from outside about Jesus, his life, his death and resurrection for our salvation. Because the gospel, unlike culture, is not time-bound. It is God's message for every time and place. And when we trust this gospel, we are saved. We are shaped. The gospel, if I can put it like this, is our real constitution. It is the thing that defines Christian citizenship. This was no easy thing for a city like Philippi to get its head around. If you were here last week, um, I talked a little about Philippi and pointed out that it was a very proud city, only a city of about 15,000, but the emperor had elevated it to Roman colony status, which meant it was a special city of benefaction from the emperor. They had tax breaks. Uh, soldiers retiring were given tracts of land in Philippi. 
And what's more, they uh, sat on the 600-mile superhighway called the Via Ignatia, which connected the eastern part of the empire with the western. So if you lived in Philippi, you not only knew you were an imperial city, you felt cosmopolitan. You felt like you were in the know. It is difficult for someone raised in Philippi to think that there is a more glorious citizenship than being a Roman Philippian. I admit it's also difficult for Australians because we know that we live in heaven on earth, right? And it must be hard for Americans because you're the only superpower. But there is a greater citizenship. It's challenging. So Paul, in this letter, creeps up to this theme. He doesn't whack him over the head straight away. He begins, as we'll hear in a moment, with what sounds like a simple update on his circumstances in prison in Rome. But don't be fooled, it's way more than that. Most commentators agree that what he's doing is he's setting up his theme of sitting loosely to culture, loosely to your circumstances, and learning to enjoy the freedom of the gospel. Let me ask Paige to bring us the first part of our passage today. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayer, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to be depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Thank you. This update from uh, verse 12 is unique in Paul's letters. Paul often gives one or two sentences of update at the end of his letters. This is the only letter where it's a lengthy update and it's at the front of the letter. So most commentators think that what's going on here is that Paul is subtly introducing the theme he's going to land on, which is the gospel frees us from being captive to our circumstances, to our situation. Paul was in terrible circumstances. He's in prison in Rome 
awaiting trial before crazy Emperor Nero. That's why, as we saw last week, the Philippians sent Paul a great parcel of gifts. They were worried about Paul, the great preacher locked up in a Roman prison. But did you notice just about the first thing he wants to rush to tell them after he's uh, told them what he thanks God for and, uh, and, and then uh, tells them what he's praying for, which we looked at last week. The first thing he does is he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Contrary to expectations, Paul's imprisonment hasn't hindered the gospel at all. It's actually exploded the gospel. Look, he says that the imperial guards have heard about Christ. How could that have happened if Paul wasn't in prison is what he's saying. How fantastic. And then he says, um, it's become clear to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. I guess he means the imperial cooks, the lawyers, the other prisoners. Obviously, Paul hasn't shut up about the gospel and people are hearing it and Paul rejoices. Then notice in verse uh, 14, he says that other preachers in Rome have been inspired by Paul's imprisonment to dare to be more bold to proclaim Christ. Paul's point, political, cultural, social, physical circumstances will not hinder the progress of the gospel. The gospel transcends these things. Some years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference to a little over 200 leaders of the underground Chinese church from many of the provinces around China. They were representatives of 60 million Christians in the room. And I was meant to be teaching them, but I am sure the Lord sent me there to teach me and challenge me. And one night, in fact, every night, someone would get up and talk about what was happening in their province because the Chinese regime was really pressuring Christians and uh, they all wanted to know about it. (laughs) And this woman got up weeping, telling us that her husband had been imprisoned. He got five years for preaching the gospel. And my translator's whispering in my ear what she's saying, and it turns out she's weeping not for sadness but for joy because she had just heard before coming to the conference that her husband in prison had led the two top officials of the labour camp, communist party leaders, to Jesus Christ. And she's weeping, telling us what a privilege her husband was enduring to see the gospel go forward. Friends, our gospel is free from circumstances. And so, in a sense, are we. Look at um, Paul's incredible statement next. It is true that some of these preachers who are, you know, more bold, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And you may know this already, but large sections of the first century church hated Paul. They thought he was like this weirdo uh, liberal who was telling all the nations that they could become followers of Jesus just by faith. They didn't have to follow Jewish customs, circumcision, food laws, and all the rest. And we know from his letter to the Romans, written uh, five years before Philippians, we know that this criticism of Paul was alive and well in Rome. He mentions it in chapter 3. So now Paul is in Rome, in prison. And some of those other preachers are causing trouble for Paul. They're not heretics. They're still preaching the same Jesus, right? But they're stirring up trouble for Paul. I think what's going on here is these preachers are preaching and saying, we're not with that rabble rouser. That scoundrel deserves to be in prison. We preach a more authentic Christianity. But here's the amazing thing. Paul didn't care. What does he say? Verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that Christ is preached and I'm happy. Oh, to have that kind of gospel freedom. Oh, to be able to rejoice regardless of how your reputation is being tarnished. Regardless of people hating you, regardless of being locked up in a prison. And it gets even more challenging in the next lines that Paige just read. There's so many things in these lines uh, that we could explore, like there's a beautiful theology of afterlife here, but I'm going to resist the, the, the uh, temptation to say more about that. I just want to zero in on verse 21, because here he drives this theme so far. For, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to, be de to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body and so on. Do you see what he's saying? If my trial with Emperor Nero goes badly, fantastic, I get to be with Jesus. If it goes well and I'm let out of here, fantastic, I get to do more good in the world. This is the apostolic win-win. It's wonderful. Now, I want you to notice, uh, uh, Paul is not advocating a Buddhist approach to contentment. People often confuse this. Um, the Buddha taught that the way you find contentment and peace in, in life is by detaching from the things that you love. Because if you're attached to the things that you really love and something happens to those things, you're sorrowful, you're distressed. So the Buddha said this in the third noble truth. The noble truth of the end of your suffering is this. It is the complete cessation of that very desire, giving it up, relinquishing it, liberating oneself from it and detaching oneself from it. But friends, Paul would make 
a terrible Buddhist. I mean, no disrespect to the Buddha. Jesus would make a terrible Buddhist because they were not detached. They were passionate. In Christianity, your emotions matter. Your passions matter. Paul loves the thought of staying and doing more good in the world. And he loves the thought of going to be with Christ. Christian contentment is not found in detaching. It's found in trusting the gospel of Jesus. The logic is perfect. What is the gospel? It's the news that Jesus lived, suffered, died in service of others and then was raised up to glory. If that's true, doesn't it make sense for us to live, suffer for the sake of others, knowing that we will be raised to glory? And all of that brings Paul to his main point in this chapter, to the central point of the whole letter to the Philippians, and this will become clear next week as well, that we are to be gospel citizens. As Paige comes to bring us this last paragraph, can you do something as she reads? Listen out for the first instruction, the first command of the letter. See, thus far in the first 26 verses, Paul has prayed, praised, described, rejoiced, but he hasn't yet given one command. That command comes now in verse 27. For the grammatical nerds in the room, and I know there are three or four of you, so the Lord bless you and keep you, this is the first verb in the imperative mood. Do this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Thank you. Did you see it? Whatever happens, whether my trial with Nero goes badly or well, whatever happens, one thing, please. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Boom, we have landed on the first imperative verb in the letter. And this hangs like a heading over the entire rest of the letter. But here's the cool thing. There's a word Paul uses in that opening line that every Philippian will have gone, ooh, did he just use that word? That's really hard to translate into English because we don't have the word. The word is citizenize. You can see why the translators didn't go for that. But it, the five words, conduct yourselves in a manner, translate one Greek verb. There it is. 
polytuestic. It's the verb of the noun polytuma, citizen. We get, um, what do we get? Politics from polytuesta. We get uh, polite. What else do we get? Police. Mm, cosmopolitan. Polity. Probably some others I've forgotten. But we don't have a verb, do we? Citizenize. So, so I think it's good for the NIV to have translated it the way I did. But, but the reason this is worth knowing is that everyone knew that word was the word for living as a good Roman citizen. Huh. And in a city like Philippi, which was a Roman colony, which had been elevated to imperial status, where there's lots of Roman soldiers, to polytuess there for Rome is a core value. And Paul says, I'm sorry, you've got a polytuess there for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a city like Philippi, this is provocative stuff. Um, here is one of the world's leading New Testament scholars describing the impact of this word in this part of Philippians, Marcus Bochmull from Oxford. Against the colonial preoccupation with the coveted citizenship of Rome, Paul interposes a counter-citizenship whose capital and seat of power are not earthly but heavenly, whose guarantor is not Nero but Christ. Philippi may be a colony, enjoying the personal imperial patronage of Lord Caesar, but the church at Philippi is a personal colony of Christ the Lord above all. Our citizenship, friends, is not to be defined by our world, but by the gospel of Jesus. That's our constitution. Now, I know your constitution rocks, okay? I've read it. I have a copy in my bag. I'm nearly always walking around with an American constitution. True story. I know it's weird, but, you know, if the shoe fits. Your constitution is arguably the greatest secular polytuest there in the history of the world. But I want to press this, friends. If you're a believer in Jesus, your truest constitution the thing which defines your citizenship is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, teachings, suffering, death, and resurrection. And that's why Paul says, whatever happens, citizenize, worthy of the gospel of Christ, stand as one for the gospel of Christ. Even if this puts you out of sync with your culture. Even if this causes you suffering, which is what Paul ends with. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God, for it has been granted, this word is the word grace, it has been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It turns out the Philippians, just like Paul, are facing persecution from Romans in Philippi. Perhaps some of them have even been thrown in jail. And Paul says, 
be courageous and receive this as a grace. But you might be thinking, what does he mean in verse 28 where he says, if the Philippians accept this suffering with confidence and grace, this will be a sign to the opponents that they're going down and that Christianity is going up. What does he mean? I think he means that as Christians face suffering with confidence and good cheer, it is a sign of the gospel to those watching on because they look like the Jesus of the gospel. As persecutors watch these Christians suffer, but with confidence and grace, opponents are are maybe going to be scratching their head. Why do they do this? Maybe all that stuff about their crucified and risen Lord is true. Maybe I'm on the wrong side of the equation. Maybe I'm going down and they're going up. That's the point. Man, if we had time, and I I know we don't, dear brother, um, I would love to lay out the evidence that this is one of the key factors in the growth of Christianity in the Roman world. We have excellent evidence that the way Christians suffered made Romans go, oh my goodness, maybe there is something to that gospel. Look how they love us even though we kill them. And there is no doubt in my mind that the way we in this country respond to increasing pressure from secular America will be a sign to secular America of the gospel. But I have to say here what what I've said for years in Australia, if we are smug, if we are resentful, if we punch back as hard as we receive, there is no way we will convince secular America that we even believe our gospel, let alone the gospel is true. Do we believe in the gospel more than our social circumstances? Hey, incidentally, the archaeology of Philippi suggests that wider Philippi did get the sign. They got the gospel and turned to Christ. Uh, We know in the period of Paul, the church was just 20 to 50 people meeting in the home of Lydia, a woman. We know within a couple of centuries, there were three or four giant basilica churches in Philippi. One of them is the size of the entire forum of Philippi. Think about this. What started as 20 people ended up being three to 4,000 in a little town. I like to think that the original readers of Paul's letter got the message. To sit loosely to their circumstances and culture and find the freedom that comes from the gospel. To citizenize worthy, not of Rome, but of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Bearing witness to Christ's suffering and resurrection. Bearing our own suffering with confidence and grace. And just like Paul in prison, watching the gospel advance despite everything. May this be our story in this moment in America. May this be the story of Chapel Street. Citizen eyes worthy of the gospel.
Lord, have mercy. Forgive us where we have been more cultural than Christian. Teach us how to be citizens of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to close our service as usual on the first Sunday of the month with the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, the bread and cup, which is really the central symbol of the gospel that shapes what we believe and shapes how we live. And I want you to know that um, this table does not belong to Chapel Street. It belongs to the Lord. So even if, you're, even if you're visiting with us for the first time today, if you've put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to share the bread and cup with us. When the trays are passed out in a moment, there are two cups stacked together in each spot. Take both cups, hold them till everyone is received, and I will lead us through the remembrance of the Lord's Supper. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are here to worship you and to learn from your word. And so we thank you for the reminder that John has given us from Philippians about our citizenship, that we are citizens ultimately of the gospel. And it's by your body and blood that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are adopted into your family, and that we become citizens of your eternal kingdom. And for that, we give you thanks. So remind us again by your spirit of your great love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
The New Testament tells us that on the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus met with his disciples for the Passover meal. At some point in that meal, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. May we do this in remembrance of him. After the bread, we are told he also poured a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as followers of Jesus, each time we drink from this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him. you came prepared to give uh, personally today uh, as a part of your worship. Our generosity boxes are in the lobby, and thank you so much for your ongoing generosity. And if you'd like to spend a few moments in prayer with a member of our prayer team, they'll be down here in front following the benediction. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, standing firm in the faith and walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Amen. Have a great day.